I went out on one operation where you had the Ukrainian military with their equipment and a group of Ukrainian civilians who had built a couple of other UAV types just joined the unit and asked whether they could test them in the environment live against Russian EW and air defenses. Threw them up, got the results. One of the drones really didn't work. One of them was actually quite effective and was very jam resistant. Welcome to AUSA's Army Matters podcast, focusing on what's important to the total Army community. We bring vital Army conversations and interviews on issues relevant to soldiers, military families, and all of you amazing Army supporters. Rotating each week, our show includes Soldier Today, Leading Great Teams, Family Voices, and Thought Leaders. Let's tune into the show. Hello, this is Colonel Retired Dan Roper, Director of National Security Studies at the Association of the United States Army, and welcome to today's episode of Army Matters. Every day we're receiving updates on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, including news on how the Ukrainians are defending themselves, the increasing casualties, and how NATO is assisting the Ukrainians in their defense. Today's guest, Dr. Jack Walling, he's an expert who's not only produced some of the best reporting on the war, but he's gathered his data through a number of trips into Ukraine to observe in person how the Ukrainian military is operating. Watling serves as the research fellow for land warfare at the Royal United Services Institute, known as RUSI, which is the United Kingdom's leading defense and security think tank. He is here today to talk about what he's seen on the ground, break down the different stages of the war thus far, and describe what a path to victory might look like. Dr. Watling, welcome to Army Matters. It's a privilege to be with you today. Now, you started your career as a journalist in some very interesting assignments. Did you begin in this industry covering and analyzing the military, or what led you to your interest and expertise in military and security affairs? So there's two tracks. Uh, Academically, I'm a historian, and my PhD was looking at the Russian Civil War, but I spent most of the last 10 years reporting on the Middle East, initially doing financial investigations. That transitioned into the investigation of non-state actors and their financing and kind of got pulled towards the conduct of operations from there. But now I work at RUSI with the military sciences team, mainly working with the British military, looking at concepts of operation and how we might fight in the future. And so as part of that work, I conduct a significant amount of field work, most recently in Ukraine, trying to understand contemporary conflict and how capabilities that are being fielded are changing the way that we need to fight. Well, your well-traveled and diverse perspective certainly comes through in your reporting and analysis. For example, the paper you co-wrote with your colleague Nick Reynolds published just last month about paving the road to victory for Ukraine is probably the best and most comprehensive piece I've read on this conflict. In the report, you mentioned that you've been in and out of Ukraine several times, both before and during this conflict. Now, based upon these observations, could you summarize the various stages of the war that have taken place thus far? Sure. So I think we've seen the conflict transition through four phases. The first was the opening three days of the campaign, where the Ukrainians were taken by surprise that the main axis was against Kiev. But the Russian military, especially at the divisional level and below, was also taken by surprise. They hadn't been told that this was going to be Uh, what was asked of them. And so we had this very chaotic attempt by the Russians to uh, rapidly occupy Ukraine cities, but with very, very little tactical planning. Because of that lack of planning, it stalled. 
And the while the Russians were trying to work out why the Ukrainians were resisting, while their units were trying to work out where they were and where they were supposed to be going, the Ukrainians managed to reposition. And so after that opening three-day debacle from the Russian side, we found that this broke down into very, very intense fighting around the front edges of several deep thrusts into Ukrainian territory. And the second phase was where the Russians were trying to regain the initiative when they realized this was going to be a fight and started pushing more and more units and all of their reserves into the fight. And so through March, there was a chaotic period where the Russians had lost track of a lot of their leading units. Their command and control was disrupted, but they had a lot of combat power and a lot of mass. Unfortunately for them, they were fixed on some pretty specific ground lines of communication. And so they suffered very, very heavy casualties from Ukrainian artillery. And so at the end of that period, the Russians had taken heavy casualties. They weren't making the progress they had anticipated. And so they withdrew from that primary axis around Kiev and instead started to transition to what the Ukrainians had expected them to do from the beginning, which was concentrate on the Donbass. But at this point, in that kind of third phase of the conflict, the Russians found that they had a new problem, which is they'd taken a lot of casualties, their units had been broken up. And so they were amalgamating units who were pretty demoralized, tired, uh, hadn't worked together before. And so they lacked defensive combat power in a lot of their infantry formations, which meant that they fell back on the mass application of fires to blow their way through Ukrainian resistance. And for a while in May and June, that posed a massive problem for the Ukrainians because the Russians had fires dominance and because the battlefield geometry meant that the Ukrainians were fixed into either sitting on an objective and being shelled relentlessly until everything was destroyed or withdrawing and ceding the territory, which meant that the Ukrainians started to take very heavy casualties. Now, the fourth phase of the conflict, which is what I think we're in now, is where the Ukrainians are effectively striking the Russian logistics system using long-range rocket systems provided by the US and other allies. And therefore, the Russians' fired dominance is kind of suppressed. The Ukrainians are also putting pressure along the whole front and thereby stretching out Russia's reserves and their resources, draining away Russia's offensive combat power. And so the Russians' ability to take more ground has largely stalled. At the same time, however, the Ukrainians have had a small number of really competent formations who've been on the front line the whole way through. They're pretty tired. And so what the Ukrainians are trying to do now is bring forward additional units, train up some of their new brigades so that they can start taking the initiative and going on the offensive. The question is, when do they feel that they've reached that sufficient point of training and mass to be able to put in a counteroffensive? Because at the moment, the Russians are also replenishing their units. But for now, we're in this kind of slower tempo, broad engagement. And the question is, who's going to build up in time quickly enough to strike first and seize the initiative for that next period of fighting, which will probably intensify at some point in the coming months. I have to say, that's a pretty concise yet detailed breakdown of the war. It strikes me that there clearly are going to be implications for not only the Russians and Ukrainians, but the U.S., its NATO allies and partners as well. As you mentioned, nothing's gone precisely as planned for either side. But what surprised you the most? 
So I think the first thing is is Russia's incompetence at the tactical level has surprised me. And that's largely because prior to this war, we observed the Russians conduct some pretty competent, increasingly integrated operations in Syria, in the Donbass in previous years. And we also saw a lot of exercises where they were effectively conducting digital fires, for example, digital fire control, to manage layered and complex engagements. So we knew they had the capability. And one of the things I've been doing is sort of battlefield exploitation work, looking at the Russian systems that have been captured. A lot of the Russian systems work. They work, broadly speaking, as advertised. There are some deviations from what we thought, but a lot of them are very effective weapon systems. So it's not the kit that is the problem here. What we've observed is that their ability to actually command and integrate combined arms formations to execute their doctrine, the training of their lower level units is very poor. And they have a critical shortage of specialists. You know, a lot of vehicles that you see destroyed have brand new encrypted radio sets in them that have been not taken out of their boxes because the operators don't know how to use the encryption keys and set up the radios. So I think there's an interesting element to this, which is that if you don't train people properly for the for the job they're going to go into, then you can have all the equipment in the world and you're still going to be in a world of pain. The second thing that I think is not a surprise, I think what we've seen in Ukraine is that you can be tactically successful out of cities, but to be operationally successful, you are going to need to seize urban ground. When you are defending, it's not just sitting in the city that keeps you alive. The city is your anchor, but it's your ability to strike from out of that city using artillery and maneuver to dislocate the force that's attacking you. If a city can be isolated, if it can be surrounded off and cut off, then actually it's not very difficult to, uh, to, to take. It just takes a bit of time. But if you can keep your lines of communication into the city open, then the defender has a huge array of advantages. And so I think that's something that is reinforced in terms of the priorities we need to set for Western militaries. Well, you've certainly reminded us about the familiar truism that the enemy has a vote and the terrain also has a vote. Just because you want to do something in a particular way, it seldom works out that way in practice. I think your point about the imperative of getting beyond tactical success to achieve operational goals is absolutely key moving forward. Well, we have to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Dr. Jack Watling about the role of innovation as well as how he thinks Ukraine could end up winning this conflict. Have you purchased your AUSA swag yet? Be proud to show your support for AUSA, which in turn shows your support for the U.S. Army and our soldiers. Check out all AUSA swag at shop.ausa.org. We're back and we're speaking with Dr. Jack Watling, one of the world's experts on the Russian-Ukraine war. Now, one of the interesting things for me thus far is how both sides are working to apply new techniques and strategies in this campaign. What can you tell us about the role of innovation with both of these militaries? So I think one of the interesting things about the Ukrainian military is that it's now a fully mobilized society and you have citizens in arms and they are bringing not necessarily a wealth of military combat experience or expertise to bear, but they're bringing their civilian skills, whether that be cyber expertise, communications expertise, or engineering expertise. I went out on one operation where you had the Ukrainian military with their equipment And a group of Ukrainian civilians who had built a couple of other UAV types just joined the unit and asked whether they could test them in the environment live against Russian EW and air defenses. 
threw them up, got the results. One of the drones really didn't work. One of them was actually quite effective and was very jam resistant. And so that could then be brought back and they explained how the module worked and that could then be transitioned onto some of the Ukrainian military UAVs. So what you're seeing is uh, a willingness to test things in a realistic environment in real time, and then an attempt to scale those lessons in terms of sharing what worked and what didn't across the force. It's a very, very innovative process. On the Russian side, we've more seen innovation at the operational level. It's more driven at kind of division. And that's partly because a lot of the Russian units are now rapidly mobilizing people that they've either pulled in on short-term contracts or they are pulling in people with former military experience who are not familiar with the current weapon systems. But nonetheless, the Russians are adapting to address the problems that they're confronting on the battlefield, usually after they suffer from it. I find it fascinating how effectively the Ukrainians have been innovating on the fly. You recently published a piece in The Economist on how the Ukrainian military can defang the Russian army and retake some of its lost territory. Could you outline for us some of the steps you think the Ukrainians ought to consider in order to do so? Sure. So there are some pretty basic steps. The first one is without their artillery, the Russian army is unable to generate offensive momentum at the moment. And their artillery is almost exclusively using unguided munitions for those battlefield roles, which means that they have huge stockpiles behind them. Striking those logistical targets, whether that be railways or the ammunition depots, and it's worth noting we published this analysis at the beginning of July, and we've now seen the effectiveness of that on diminishing Russia's ability to concentrate fires. The second component is you want to destroy the guns because destroying ammunition is one thing, but if you run out of HIMARS munitions, GM, you know, Gimlers, then uh, you're going to remove that suppression. The way that the Ukrainians are finding targets tends to be UAVs. The challenge is Russian EW is downing a lot of UAVs. And so if we can provide the Ukrainians with loitering munitions that are able to target the emissions of, from those EW systems then there is an opportunity to remove the barriers to accurate positioning. Once you get to that position, we then transition to how do the Ukrainians themselves go on the offensive? Because if they're going to retake terrain, then they're going to need to conduct offensive maneuver. And there, I think it's important that they don't go early. They need much more infantry training for their new units. You know, A lot of people only had three to 10 days of training and then were pushed in. They learned a lot of good stuff on the job from more experienced people, but they learned offensive maneuver uh, and defensive tactics. When they're starting to do offensive activity, you can only get that wrong once. So if the Ukrainians are not going to take a lot of casualties, I think they need to take those new brigades, put them through in pretty intensive training to make sure they're up to scratch in their infantry skills. And then the third requirement is that they have sufficient protected mobility to be able to maneuver and resupply units on the field. They have enough tanks. They're pretty comfortable with their tank fleet uh, and they know how to operate it. But when it comes to protected mobility, they keep running into this problem where they take a position or they're defending a position. The Russians get artillery to cover the road leading up to it. And so whenever they try and replenish their troops or recycle their units, they suffer attrition moving in and out of position. And the challenge there for NATO is that both in terms of artillery systems for the Ukrainians, but also the vehicle fleets that we're providing, there's very little commonality of spare parts. And so 
This also requires NATO to be much more, or Ukraine's international partners, to be much more rational in the way that they group the support that they give. If it's a battery of this and a you know, uh, company's worth of another vehicle type, that is a very, very large logistics footprint that's required to sustain and maintain those vehicles, but it's for a very limited amount of output. Whereas what you want, if you want second and third line maintenance available at scale, is for them to have a large number of the same type of platform. And that's something that will require cooperation across NATO to make sure that we're getting them the right thing and then focus on concentrating what we deliver so it's as few platforms as possible. You mentioned that in your paper as well, specifically that NATO standardization isn't very standardized. It's actually somewhat alarming. As someone who spent 30 years firing American artillery and dealing with its associated operational and logistical requirements, we've got to think about making things like that more compatible with our allies and partners. I might just make a quick point on that, which is that we're at this inflection point in NATO at the moment where we're going towards more and more automated systems, remote turrets on our weapon systems. What the Ukrainians are finding is that even if an artillery shell fits in a couple of different kinds of howitzer at the same caliber, the charge system that interacts with the autoloader is almost always different. And so as we all start buying and integrating our remote weapon systems and so forth and autonomous vehicles, it's really important that we standardize around how the charge systems work, how those loading mechanisms work as soon as possible. Otherwise, there will be massive bottlenecks in NATO's logistics and in our industrial base if we need to suddenly scale up production. So I think this is a, a moment of realization for NATO that we don't just need to do this in terms of supporting Ukraine. We need to do this so that we're ready if you know, we end up in a fight. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Dr. Jat Watling, thanks for joining us to talk about your insights into the war in Ukraine and for the groundbreaking research you're doing overall with land combat in the 21st century. Great to see you again. Thank you very much, Dan. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and your colleagues at AUSA, and I look forward to working with you again in the future. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Army Matters podcast on iTunes and everywhere podcasts are found. The Army Matters podcast series is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission to educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and our supporters of a strong national defense. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. Have a great Army Day. Hua. <laughs>